Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, we're welcoming William J. Simmons to read as he reads from his new book, Queer Formalism, The Return, and being in conversation with L.A. writer Emily Wells. Before Thank I you so much. <laughs> before I formally introduce them, though, I want you to I want to remind you that Skylight Books is now open for limited browsing from twelve. Uh, uh, with a limited capacity from 11 to 7 on the weekdays and 10 to 8 on the weekends. So please bring your masks and practice social distancing, but come on by. We also offer curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, skylightbooks.com. William J. Simmons is a writer and curator based in Los Angeles in New York. He has a degree in art history and gender studies from Harvard University and the University of Southern California. He's working on his first book of fiction, Atlantic Terminal, a novel. So welcome, Emily and William. I'm so happy to have you both here today. Thanks for oh, having thanks. us, Lance. No it's a real, it's an honor. And uh, it's an honor to do this with you, Emily. I feel like there's no one else I'd want to talk to about this uh, than Emily. This is and so actually the first time we ever hung out in person, you and I, we went to Skylight Books. And I remember because we, you needed a new copy of Anna Karenina. Oh my God. Can I just say that's a perfect reason to like want to have your first like uh, hangout session at Skylight Books. So everyone listening, go pick up a copy of Anna Karenina to like fully experience that. <laughs> but Skylight. only, but only the Anna Karenina movie tie-in version because <laughs> that was the specific one that I wanted and y'all had it. So... <laughs> I can't believe that we can we can talk about the the, the ins yeah. and outs of that. Um, I would love to on. hear it, but um, I'll let you go <laughs> with your reading, William, and um, I'll be in the background listening. Thank you. So I'm just going to read a few pages from the introduction, um, which is dedicated to Audrey Horn. When I was a sophomore in college, I had the life changing opportunity to do a studio visit with the painter Amy Silman. That visit laid the groundwork for my essay Notes on Queer Formalism, which was originally published in 2013 in the Boston-based art magazine, Big Red and Shiny. It was then republished on the blog for the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, where I was an undergraduate fellow and where Silman had been an artist fellow. The original essay centered on painters, Silman, Nicole Eisenman, Lydie Churchman, and Elise Adibi, who was the Radcliffe Artist Fellow at the time and the supervisor for my fellowship. I was not yet 21 when I wrote the essay. 
and I am surprised in retrospect that I managed to write it at all. At the time, I was a heavy smoker, prone to bouts of ear infections and moist, chesty coughs that lingered for weeks. About a week before the deadline, I came down with a flu that settled lustily in my chest. I had to reduce my smoking to half a cigarette every hour, which of course did not help much. I kept writing and only half understood what I was saying. One morning, I woke up to an intense pain in my chest. Convinced I was having a heart attack, I dragged myself to the student health center. I was told that in fact, I was not having a heart attack, but that I had an infection called pericarditis, which was coextensive with my flu and had spread to the sac that lines my heart, causing it to swell and become inflamed. The treatment was simple, fistfuls of ibuprofen at regular intervals, though I wished it were something more melodramatic, like electroshock therapy. Oh, but then the melodrama did arrive when I was told perfunctorily that I ought to get tested for HIV since pericarditis is often a symptom. At that point, I had not yet even seen a cock that was not my own, and I'd only had sex with two people, both women, in the past. My high voice pathologized me nevertheless. HIV seemed unlikely, I told them, but they took my blood anyway. And despite my surety that it was impossible, I became in intensely paranoid in the way that perhaps only an aspiring critic could be. I did not have HIV, but there were equally chronic issues at play. I realize in retrospect that Silman and Eisenman would probably love the image of a swollen heart sack. I wish that I had thought of the irritated lining as a broken heart, but, the time, but at the time I treated it as merely a hindrance to meeting a deadline. I did, however, meet that deadline. And I tell this story not to affirm some puritanical notion of the intellectual value of suffering. Maggie Nelson already neatly deconstructed that in The Art of Cruelty. Rather to say that so often when we are young, we do not give ourselves a break. This happens frequently with queer people who feel the need to prove themselves to the world, who doubt their own inherent worth even as they affirm it to everyone else. Seven years later, however, I'm only just beginning to see that perennially chasing a broken heart, living with a broken heart, did not make me or my notes on queer formalism or any other writing projects better or more meaningful. I've since learned that being queer does not have to mean being sad. Yet this is the conceit of academia and art schools, that the only thing worth doing is suffering through bureaucracies and exclusionary tests in order to merely reach the next nebulous hoop that must be traversed so that someday, some unidentifiable day, one might, if one manages to continue to pay the rent on a ludicrously low salary, have a legacy. And the only way to reach that legacy is through the paranoid language of critique. That is, we must find the heretofore unconsidered dissertation or artistic practice, even as we are meant to deconstruct notions of originality. Queerness itself unconcerned with maturity in some iterations, as in the work of queer pessimists like Lee Edelman, or in the queer tendency toward youthful and pleasurable self-destruction, might be the answer to this double bind. 
for in queerness or in queer formalism, we might understand and find liberation in the facts that everything has been done before and that there is no such thing as greatness, which is not to say that nobody and nothing can be truly special, but rather that all moments, all experiences, all of our daily intimacies and disappointments coalesce like paint or photographic chemicals or come into the image of a life and that is good enough. In effect, queer formalism owes everything to second wave feminism, which reminded our elders that the personal is political, despite the marginalization of feminism in contemporary queer and trans discourses. This kind of queer sentimentalism, however, does not negate the possibility of critique and it is not endlessly capacious. It seems to me that queer formalism as a term has somehow become both too narrowly and too loosely applied, lending itself to any number of artists who, to pick just one of many cliches, explore the interspace between abstraction and figuration. Yet despite a generous formal definition, queer and trans art historical methodologies seem to only be applied to artists deemed or identifying as queer and or trans. Equally troubling is the return to queer figuration by cis gay male artists who, in a fascist neoclassical way, depict conventionally handsome live boys scrolling on post-coital Instagram. Queerness is not always perfectly shaped cocks, and it is not cocks that one can find if one squints at a canvas through a Freudian lens, though of course it can be those things. A swollen cock and a swollen heart can likewise be the same, but they may also be irreducibly separate. Thank you. Thanks for that, Will. I love that you opened with the introduction just to kind of um, introduce the concept of queer formalism to readers who might not be as familiar. Uh, so this was actually, this book is actually a follow-up to the essay that you originally wrote, which kind of offered these ways of thinking about queer and feminist art outside subject matter and then outside the critical, complicit, and abstract representational binaries. Uh, how would you briefly describe what this looks like to somebody who's not as familiar? That's a, that's a great question because um, what I wanted to get across, for me at least, it's changed a lot since I wrote the original essay, which you know y'all can find on Big Red and Chinese um, website. Um, because back then, uh, for me and for a lot of uh, folks, I think it was largely painters um, who are working in this quasi-abstract, quasi-representational um, um, mode, and in large part, it was uh, queer women. Um, and actually, a, one member of that group of the originals um, does not identify as queer, and I talk about that in the essay. But um, you know, when I was asked to 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 do this by my fabulous publisher Aaron Bogart at Floating Opera Press, I realized that my relationship to that discourse was was so different. I, I was so, um, I, I didn't want to talk about, you know, abstraction and representation because I think it got played out so much in uh, art historical discourse. Um, and now anyone 
who was making anything with, you know, vaguely abstract figures was somehow making queer work. Um, and I don't necessarily want to police that, but it, it, it just wasn't my truth. Um, and so in this new iteration, I think I see queer formalism more in terms of, of, of attachment. Um, I see queer work being more about um, how you attach to it um, and the sort of uh, hysterical uh, attachments one might have, uh, a term that Emily, of course, you're an expert on, um, not because you're hysterical, but because of your forthcoming book. But um, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, now I'm much, I'm not even so much interested in subject matter, no subject matter, abstract representational, because, you know, honestly, art history ruined that. Um, and as it does a lot of things, but um, now I'm interested in, in attachments and, you know, your, your question also gets me thinking about, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's really about a queer, uh, queer, a queer choice, almost like a queer ready-made that anything that one uh, connects to in a queer way um, you know, what Eve Kozofsky Sedgwick um, might call an excessive way. Um, that, that's a queer attachment and therefore that's a queer um, artistic practice, that's a queer um, relationship. Um, rather than trying to decode whether or not a blob has a penis, which I think <laughs> was very much what we were talking about in 2012, 2013. Um, and that's, no longer um, of interest, really. Does yeah. that help a little bit? <laughs> totally. One of, one of the many quotes I wrote down uh, to talk about to this end, you said, more than anything, I think queer formalism is not a style or movement, but a necessary and reckless and activist and reclusive and informed and blithe state of free association that springs forth from the simultaneous love and skepticism that non-normative bodies cultivate in order to survive, which I thought was so illustrative. I'm actually, I'm teaching this class right now on kind of like emulative writing and we just did the White Album, which of course I'm really dating myself by signing Didion because these college students have never heard of her. But right. we've we talked a lot about um, style coming forth through free association or the connection of events that aren't necessarily um, immediately evident to a reader. And mm. that was something I thought that you were kind of putting forth as how to do criticism, but also really modeling it for the reader in this text. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm flattered that you think so. I think, uh, you know, that really gets to the core of sort of what I see as the, as the politics. You know, of, of course, it's vain to say that one's work has a politics, uh, but, I, but I try my best. And, you know, I, when I sort of, after the book was sort of put together and then, you know, in the process of putting together, I was thinking a lot about um, uh, intuition which is such a problematic and masculinist term, you know, even if you're talking about like woman's intuition, you know, <laughs> your mom, your mom knows that you're, you know, smoking weed and, you know, whatever. I always uh, <laughs> right? It's, yeah, they, eyes in the back of their heads, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, this problematic concept of, of, of intuition and maybe, maybe free association is the better term because what, what, what I see, um, as the politics here, as, as I 
conceptualize it is, you know, I think about my path as a former academic, and I know that you have a lot of experience in this too. I academic session conversation right now. Right. I mean, it's it's a what it comes down to is a process of people telling you not only no, but that your ideas are not, uh, are in some way uh, defunct. Um, and that if you, if you do want to write about something that's off the beaten track or quirky or what have you, you have to have this like massive intellectual framework behind it um, in order to validate it, right? And the issue is that yes, every, you know, uh, there should be an intellectual framework, but it should not be a precondition for something that you love being valuable. Um, and and when I think about this book, I, uh, you know, I think about my former students, uh, many of whom have taught me so much over the years. And, and I just think about, uh, I want to create an environment wherein their sort of intuition, as it were, um, is valued, or or even uh, more pervasively, that they're allowed to have an intuition at all. Because of course, you know, the history, as with most things, is that you know, um, cis white men have this intuition, and occasionally women, under the auspices of a weird patriarchal domestic <laughs> uh, set of confines. Um, but I I, I want to think through how everyone how everyone's intuition can be um, valued and how, you know, not only can they write dissertations on it, but that they can, they can just think about it in a complex way and understand that as academic labor, mm. right? Because, because right now, like, if you love Kirsten Dunst or <laughs> Selena <laughs> or really Lady Gaga, <laughs> yeah, you have to, you have to find some outside context and sort of work for pennies to write about that. And, you know, um, I, I, wanna, I wanna see if we can change that in some way. I mean, cause I, that's, that's a politics in terms of allowing everyone to forge the, the relationships with culture that they want to, you know, i.e., um, you know, not requiring uh, black students to be experts on black art, which happens all the time, um, or women to be experts on yeah. women. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but you can be, uh, you don't have to be, um, or- it's about receiving your intellectual curiosities as like, like a tasteful object of contemplation, as opposed to just with, with being dismissive and which we know the academy to be. And we even like, just as media serfs who, who write about art, we also know media to be. <laughs> right, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, you, that what you're saying about seriousness is so important because I meet, I've met so many students and this sound, I'm starting to sound like, starting to sound like, uh, like a boomer. <laughs> and in the trenches. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, I, um, I have met students and a good number of them who are so eager and so smart, but they just fundamentally at their core don't believe that what they like is interesting. And yes. yes. 
and, and my favorite part about teaching this class is because it's it's very unrestricted and what, the only requirement is that they're using their their experience of their life as material in some right. way. So how do how do you I mean your forthcoming book is is in some ways um, autobiographical. I mean how do you foster that in those students? How do you with bring... Difficulty. <laughs> huh? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's with enormous difficulty because I yeah. don't even feel like it's something I've gotten over myself. Like, especially um, my book is largely about uh, kind of discursive histories of illness and pain. And so, you know, I, the idea that your pain is not a tasteful object of contemplation mm. is like very deep ingrained for me. It's, yeah, I, I'm only getting over it as I write, but... Interesting. And has um, has writing been sort of a recuperative act for you in that regard? Yeah, definitely. Even though I don't think it it needs to be in order for mm. the project to to make sense. But it's really it's really rewarding to see that happen in students when it when it can. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know it's almost like. I mean, we're still not even <laughs> treating pop culture with much seriousness, which is mind blowing. I to do, me. <laughs> right? I mean, we're we constant discourse. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 the basis of what of what you and I talk about. I mean, <laughs> I think one thing that I did want to bring up to you that um, sort of our discussions leading up to this got me thinking about was I realized that. <sighs> Actually, Emily commissioned me once to write about melancholia um, for the magazine Artillery, which was a, a great experience. But um, I realized that in all the iterations of, of writing about uh, that film by Lars von Trier, I've never actually written about Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> I, you know, and, and I think that that has to do with like the conventions of how we write about cinema. But I think more, more, more generally, like, and I, we have a set of, of largely women who function <laughs> as, I think exclusively women who function as, as idols of ours and Kirsten is one of them. And I guess I was thinking about how, how could one have a politics of writing about Kirsten Dunst as opposed to writing to, about Lars von Trier? Interesting. I think, I think you air towards it. I was trying to find that section uh, what are, where are you writing about melancholia? I think, uh, I, 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 think I was talking, I think I tried to talk about Kirsten's character, Justine, yes. you know, um, but I never thought until, until we, we've discussed Kirsten lately, how, how interesting that is, because, you know, part of the reason why it, for me, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, um, why Kirsten, uh, so interesting and important to me is that, you know, her chance at an Oscar for Melancholia was totally screwed because of Lars's unfortunate comments at Cannes in 2011. And ever since then, her sort of pivot to like uh, prestige TV has sort of been met with like a lot of critical interest, but never the, but not necessarily um, actually getting any awards. Um, and I should say really quick that, that I discuss uh, Melancholia and Lars von Trier in chapter two, which is called How Did It Disappear? And it's dedicated to Lana Del Rey and Laurie Simmons. But yeah. In the context of melodrama. And yeah. 
kind of belief and the impossibility of belief and yeah because Kirsten I think wants to believe that she'll be recognized for her contributions to you know cinema with a capital C or television with a capital T so but is often you know thwarted in that attempt and yeah I wonder what would that look like to sort of critically approach her as an actor as opposed to the, the sort of narrative of that film. Mm, interesting. I don't know. I, I like what you were talking about the other day where you were like, I can tell a lot about someone by like what person does to role they're drawn to. Like if you're right. drawn to melancholia or virgin suicides versus, I don't even remember what were the other ones. But it, it's uh, about uh, Diary of a Vampire. Yes, Diary and, of a Vampire. Um, Someone said Fargo season two, which- I've never watched Fargo. Oh, it's so good. I just finished it last night. And it's one of those things that's very, it's very almost over the top and it's sort of zeitgeistiness, which I kind of think that the Virgin Suicides was too, but it really lands and it's not sort of overbearing. Like, I don't know, like Wes Anderson is, no offense, but um, it really lands, but- I think that, that 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 might be part of the politics as well in terms of, yeah, just showing students that, that they can be, you know, obsessed with Kirsten Dunst or what have you and, and have that be treated with, um, with seriousness because it means, uh, it means a number of things. It says something about, I don't know, my relationship to women generally, your relationship to women, uh, to cinema, you know, it, on and on and on. And, yeah. and I think that that's, that's part of it. But to have affinity and affection be taken as an intellectually serious, at least conversation, but perhaps endeavor. I yeah. We've both really tried to make for our students. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure you're doing it. Luckily, I'm out of the <laughs> teaching factory. Bravo. Um, but, <laughs> You know, that gets me thinking about another thing, um, sort of in response to your earlier question, which was that I think something I also wanted to address in, in this book and hopefully in, in my novel um, is cis gay male misogyny. Um, because I think a lot about this uh, over-identification with women, um, specifically, you know, the, the, the gay generation that sort of raised me as it were, you know, in terms of men, gay men of a certain age who are obsessed with Judy Garland or if they were really hip like Amy Winehouse or, you know, any, Betty Davis, any number of, of, of things. And I wanted to get at the core of that and I wanted to make sure that my medium was not diva worship um, because I think other people um, do that better um, but also to point out that, that diva worship, even my attachment to Kirsten Dunst, what, Lana Del Rey, Lady Gaga, whatever, you know, diva worship is a form of misogyny, um, of gay male misogyny, because uh, it's, it's founded on the violation of women and it's, 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 it's medium is violated women. So, I think that's what I wanted to sort of get at with the section on melancholia and the section on um, or the introduction on, on Twin Peaks um, and naming it after Twin Peaks, The Return. Um, 
I think that's something that I really wanted to point out. Yeah, and I think that ties in with what you were saying about attachment, because in, in the opening, you're, you know, you say that queer formalism is this desire to attach and reattach to kind of what we, elements of culture that we call problematic. And um, we do so anyway, right? Like whether or not they're problematic has nothing to do with the way that we attach to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that you and I have both canceled a number of things. Um, <laughs> or we love, we love things despite their cancellation. Right, well. right, exactly. I mean- The other uh, night I actually rewatched Dancer in the Dark because your, your book mentioned it and I hadn't seen it. Oh no. Years. I totally forgotten. I was not prepared. I totally forgotten just how unrelenting and yeah. you know, despair. It's, it's so much, but I was telling people about it at this uh, distanced dinner party. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh yeah, I can't handle Lars von Trier. It's just like the abuse of women is all it's about. And I'm like, wow, mm -hmm. that's crazy. I don't, I never would have thought that, but hmm. it's obviously true. I love that. What <laughs> did you, <laughs> I love that. What was your, what was your thought process prior to that in terms of his relationship to women? Oh God. I think it's exactly what you're describing in this text though. It's, it's like, attachment to this oftentimes problematic thing, wanting it to love you back. Love is requited sometimes, it's not others. And even if, um, you know, you're, you can see as you very eloquently go through in the book, like I'm not actually excusing the problematic elements of this. They just have nothing to do with my navigation of it. Mm. Well, thanks. I, I think that's <laughs> a very elevated um, reading. Um, yeah, I mean, thank you. I think um, no one's actually, again, probably because of my cis uh, male privilege, no one's actually like critiqued my relationship to Lars von Trier or to David Lynch, <laughs> who I've written about a number of times. Um, your relationship to Lana. <laughs> oh my God, my relationship to Lana. Well, because <laughs> she's, you know, uh, we'll have to save her for the end, maybe. But I think, um, you know, because, yeah, Lars got me too And what Bjork said that he did to her was unconscionable. Which I totally and forgotten about. And I know. I it, that movie and then I was like, oh, that's right. This was like so traumatic for her that she like stopped acting. Right. And it, but it went so, it was weird because when she made that announcement, it went so under the radar. And I think that's because people who like Lars von Trier are boys who, you know, don't necessarily give a shit about me too. And- That's so funny, because I think of him as someone that like all my girlfriends are, like we watch Melancholia. Well, you and I watch Melancholia <laughs> once. <laughs> I think you, you have cooler friends than I do. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, if you get a drink in us, we'll tell you a story about the time we forced someone to watch Melancholia. And they, were, it, they were not ready. <laughs> they weren't ready. Um, because there, there is something very feminine, you know, with a capital F about his work. Um, and he often describes it in those terms. I guess I was just coming to it from, you know, speaking of, 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 of trauma and whatnot, you know, I approach his work from the place of when I saw Melancholia, I finally saw something that, that sort of reflected what I felt in terms of my depression. And of course, I am not beautiful like Charlotte Gainsbourg or like Kirsten Dunst or like Alexander Skarsgård, but I thought the number one thing that, that, that my depression sort of wants is that, 
is that the world end of its own accord so that I don't have to kill myself, right? Because yeah. there's a different, totally. there's a different, yeah, and, and a different intentionality, right? And, and I that think that she's that's- she's more prepared for the end of time because she's basically already processed that the world is evil yeah. and more than the loss of it. And Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> yeah, and, and I think I wanted to believe that I, had some sort of, uh, that I could make it through a, a disastrous situation like that because when you when you feel this way in any number of iterations of depression and anxiety, you feel like it is the end of the world constantly uh, or you want it to be the end of the world constantly. And I wanted to believe that I could be beautiful and poised and sort of rough. Dignified in, in yes. case of imminent ending and yeah. Yes. Yeah. We yes. all want to feel like we're able to be dignified in the in the face of in the face of that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, you know, but that you know, that's exactly I think what Lars was getting at in terms of his comments about fascist art, um, because that desire for dignity in the face of 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 disaster does connect with fascism in in interesting ways. But you know. At the end of the day, I was just like, I need to, again, process this film, this experience. I've really only seen it. I think the time you and I saw it, maybe was only my third time that I've seen it it's in its entirety. I mean, of course I watched the, the Tristan and Isolde prelude, like. That's one of my favorite pieces of music of all time too. It's just so beautiful. It it's is. so perfect for that film. It is. What, um, yeah, what is, yeah, what do you, I, I'm always puzzled by it because I don't know a ton about music. What, what, kind of what draws you to it? Opera. Oh yeah. God, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't speak eloquently about music is something I've. It's hard. I've been deeply affected, but it's, yeah, like right. pain is rather resistant to linguistic description. <laughs> right. Well, no, that's, that's sort of what the last chapter is about a little bit that's dedicated to my boyfriend, Felipe Nunez and Jessica Lang, uh, where I sort of mentioned briefly that I, that I dated or something, a composer, and that I was always very angry that he had this set of knowledge that I couldn't really access um, in terms of oh, talking about. Though. Huh? I love that though. I love like the intimacy of coming to know someone when you speak different languages about yeah well that's the relations that's that's the that's maybe the truest I've always thought that you had a very interesting way and and probably the most generative way of navigating sort of the self and other dichotomy because I feel like you are always sort of seeking difference in a way that I've only come to recently um in terms of uh being able to not have to make the loved object or the loved, uh, you know, text sort of mirror you, you know? Um, and that makes me think, you know, cause I'm interested in it for, for myself but also more for you. How, how does autobiography function for you? Oof, it's, <laughs> it's so- Sorry, so you didn't know you'd be on the, you'd be on the spot too today. I don't know that I'm gonna be able to or will keep like writing about myself after this project because it feels so um kind of defined by 
paradox and like incongruousness mm. and I, I'm writing about hysteria and particularly you know Lacan's idea of hysteria is something that's not an affront it's like the Harris hysteric can uncover new lines of inquiry through their dissatisfaction with life and the kind of di mental dichotomies that they're able to hold and that becomes generative but I yeah I don't know I guess that's how I ideally see how I'm writing this book, but I don't know that that will adapt to many other things. Mm. Well, you know, when I, when I got to read, was it, what was it, the introduction and first chapter, maybe? I think, you know, again, the self and other issue, I thought that you did such a spectacularly interesting job of, of sort of mediating the personal and collective, right? Because, you know, we are in this moment of sort of um, the fad for auto theory. Um, and I think a lot of it, even some of the things that we um, really cherish, some of the texts that we really cherish, you know, ultimately come down to um, a performance of one's access to knowledge because yeah. one went to a high powered college or whatnot. Um, which of course, you know, people do, I did, we do, but um, I thought that your approach was really uh, fabulous in terms of making the personal more um, expansive, but not to the point where the only point of connection is theory. You know, there were definitely moments where there was, there was a connectivity being made between you and, and the audience or what have you. Um, oh, you're welcome. That wasn't just based on, on, on academic performativity. It's hard because nothing feels less like living in a body, a flesh prison than right. theory, but <laughs> right. also like what we have to try to try to describe it to other people, so. Right, because that's, 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 that's all we can do is because, you know, all we can do in a certain sense is describe, even though that's very much not what you're supposed to do in academia in a certain sense, because description is just one level and underneath that is the truth of the text or whatever. And there is, uh, there is something empowering about just the act of, um, describing. I mean, even, you know, these sort of the occasional autobiographical element in my book, you know, it was so, um, it was really refreshing to, 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 to write. And now it's pretty much, pretty much exclusively what I do. I don't know that it's quite to the level of some authors uh, where everything that they write is about themselves, but maybe that is what it is at the end of the day, that, that, that everything we're doing is just a drawn out autobiography. Yeah, you touch upon that early on in the text. I like that part. You're saying, um, oh, yeah. I it was in response to wherever <laughs> that page. Um, I think it was chapter two. Emily, you are, you are such a good <laughs> interlocutor because I don't, I don't remember these things. Not because I, 
I, I don't want to perform a lack of knowledge because that's so boring, but just that I honestly think that that most pieces of writing that I'm proud of, I do feel traumatized by them at the end. Oh, yeah. And I don't and I don't want to look at them again. Have you oh experienced God, that? Horrible. Absolutely. I feel like I've experienced it for so long. I'm just really eager to be done with this book so I can even stop having to like read it myself. But well, I have the most generous. I hope that happens. <laughs> oh yeah, here we go. Too. It was later, uh, page 42, you say, we still know no matter if we radically invest in the cliches of interpretation or reject them, love that because you know, I get very into Sontag on interpretation, mm -hmm. but in some sense, the process of articulation is fundamentally lonely and disconnected, one marked by a profound inability to speak to anything but one's own self. Maybe this is what queer and feminist art history teaches us, that all history is essentially autobiography and nothing more, and that is more than all right. What a good reckoning. I did say that. <laughs> I did say that, you know, and I'll tell you. Um, and, you know, Emily has been my editor on numerous occasions and, um, you know, is a is a fabulous editor. And I um, I think I owe a lot of, you know, my writerly self to you. Um, but I think uh, you know, at multiple times in my career as a writer, I think I was made to feel ashamed for writing about myself, which, um, you know, I've had artists who were like, uh, who were disappointed that something wasn't enough about um, their work and that it was too much about me. <laughs> and, you know, of course that- I always love those pieces though. I love when you have like something you've written I don't know, maybe this is a stretch, but sometimes it feels like more honest than like straight criticism to write something mm -hmm. in response to the work with the way that you've been affected. Those are always my favorite like texts for gallery shows or mm -hmm. like when someone has a creative response as opposed to just like an essay about what they think the work is doing, interpreting it. Yeah, well, you know, um, I think you're right. And I, and I wanted to emulate people who do that well, I think someone who does that very, I mean, the only, the number of art critics that I care about is so, <laughs> it's dwindled by the years, you know, it's Amy Silman, who identifies as an artist primarily, but writes amazing um, art criticism. Of course, you and you write, um, you know, Rarely now. <laughs> well, yeah, we got to scared out of us through the years. <laughs> yeah, it's rough, but um, I love, I love Jerry Saltz uh, and I love Roberta Smith um, and I love Julia Kristeva, of course, but she's not, you know, an art critic, but when she writes about art, um, but it's just art, art criticism these days is so boring and so um, it's not even undemocratic because it's like, the, the nomenclature that's used is so empty. It's not even like there is any sort of exclusionary taste level or something. It's just, it's boring. You know, art, a, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of ads for, well, a lot of magazines, I was about to drag someone by name, but I won't. Um, a lot of magazines, their review sections are just regurgitated press releases written by oh. women. 
like I know like it's <laughs> like it's like boy long ago <laughs> yeah I mean it's like boy art critics and they go to Gagosian or wherever and they read a press release and they just move some words and inevitably it was an underpaid woman who wrote it yeah um, or like they add a big speculation about intent which like to right. be honest I don't care about and I don't right. really think that needs to be there um, right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> in, intentionality is such um, an important part of this that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Because I mean, I, I I can't count, but I'd say a majority of the artists I have in here do not identify as well. Maybe half and half do not identify as queer. I think Kristen Dunst resolutely does not identify as queer, <laughs> but that's okay, sis. Um, <laughs> right, I mean, because yeah, it is about that relationship, but sometimes, I wonder if you've come across this, I wonder about, oh, this is so good. I I want to hear about your, <laughs> about your Carolee Schneeman piece, the last interview she ever gave, rest in peace. But the, the reason I bring it up is because I think when we attach, as it were, really forcefully to certain um, artists, I think that you um, you imagine that their intentionality matters because you imagine that you're the one who gets it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I'm so resistant to that, but like absolutely to that with Carolee, who I'm deeply attached to and deeply affected by her work, and yeah, totally. Yeah, because you, you want to, I think it is maybe an academic holdover, like you want to believe that you're the only one who, like an archaeological find, right, that you're the only one. Really gets it. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's, so it's always a push and pull, like if, if it's someone like, uh, like someone like uh, Alex Prager, you know, whose work is fabulous, you know, it, it is not uh, appeared in a queer context or a feminist context. And that's part and parcel of that essay that, that I wrote that she hasn't sort of been included in feminist um, art. But um, even so, like that work is so uh, deeply queer for me in, in a way that David Lynch's work is queer or that, that Lars von Trier's work is, is queer. It's this sort of excessive quality um, and a sort of um, uh, sort of some sort of shadow lurking in glamour you know all these things that you know um, that that queer people are drawn to <laughs> or maybe it's just me um, I don't know but I do think that that part and parcel with um, intentionality is sort of categorization too because you know the 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 essay um it's chapter it's chapter two um how to disappear um that's dedicated to Lana Del Rey and and my mentor Laurie Simmons but um that uh, essay came from a, a very academic wondering or questioning about why certain women artists were included in queer and feminist art and others weren't um, and I think the paradigmatic example of that um, are, are, are Alex Prager and Sally Mann. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, Sally's work was very much dealing with these culture wars, 
culture wars issues of motherhood and sexuality and what have you, but she's never included in those um, histories or even, you know, I wrote like a, like a, you know, essay that was supposed to be a journal article, but like, I don't have time um, about how she's, how she's left out of histories of censorship because her work was censored um, on, on, I believe it was the T Magazine supplement um, where her daughter's chest has one of those black bars across it. Um, and she's not included in these histories, I think in part because um, her work uh, sells for a lot of money and she's, yeah. she's reached a certain level of fame. Um, and so we assign an intentionality to her that she's unserious or that she's only in it for the money. And that's almost a point where you have to be like, maybe intentionality does matter because ascribing that intentionality to women artists happens all the time. Yes. And it's something that needs to be deconstructed. Yeah, I think you elegantly sidestepped in this book. Um, have, like when you, you say that, okay, we're not gonna talk about like, the, we're not going to use the content as kind of the qualifier for if something is queer, we're going to kind of navigate in this more nuanced realm of attachment. And I think that that is a, perhaps a more generous space in which to consider intentionality than, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I hope it functions. I hope it functions that way because again, it, it gives, gives more people more room uh, to write about what it is um, that they want to write about, whether you know it is um, a queer student or 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 and or a student of color who wants to write about you know queer color artists, or you know um, a any number of of ways to identify you know either they can they can sort of write about um i don't it comes down to being able to to write about and and love whatever you want and not sort of um have expectations placed on where those attachments um lie or or or, or requirements because i i see that so often in how we teach young people and i'm sure you do too um sort of a weird paternalistic nod to quote unquote diversity. But of course that's not the issue. The issue isn't necessarily, it's in part expanding the canon, you know, to include more queer people, more women, more people of color, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's also about widening the imaginary for how we can sort of think about the canon. Yes, definitely. And that's so much, I mean, we've talked about this a bunch, but I feel like it's, um, you know, it's worse in other kinds of journalism, I guess, but it's definitely still there in kind of more conventional art writing where there's this language that presumes objectivity or performs objectivity when, like when we're dealing with affect and attachment, it's just absurd that you would even try to perform that because it's so clearly not. Um, right, and, yeah. and, 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 and I think we, we have to wrap up, but um, I think uh, that has everything to do with it, another form of, of gatekeeping, right? Because it's like, 
say a young person has sort of queer idol that they love and you don't get it. I find this more and more with my students. I'm like, who? This is like a, this is like a TikTok no person? I are talking about it. <laughs> I've, I've really, I used to feel like the young instructor and now I feel like the old instructor. Same. And it's like, oh, this person is famous on TikTok. That's cool. Or what, you know, or. Tell me about your attachment to them. That's what I want to read. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like and trying to tell me why it's objectively the best TikToker or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because then, you know, you say to them, I don't get what this is. I don't necessarily know how to build a, a theoretical framework around it because I don't necessarily know that Foucault has anything to say about TikTok. But what 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 he probably he would. But but the point is that you you say yes, you know, and uh, because it's such an intense privilege to be able to write a book where you can essentially write about whoever you want and sort of put together um, your dream team. Of, of artists and thinkers. And at the end of the day, I think the goal um, is that everybody has that privilege and, and opportunity to sort of follow their, their flights of fancy as it were, because I think a lot of us uh, were encouraged to do that um, and a lot of people weren't. That's a really good summation. Thank you. Well, I am sorry that I'm inner the <laughs> jumping in on this because this has been such an interesting. <clears throat> oh, thank <Sorry>. you. <laughs> yeah. I um, I mean, I had to stop myself like a few times from being like, I want to jump in when you guys are talking I wish about like you could. <laughs> yeah, sorry, we could do this all day. So, <laughs> person Dunn's conversation, I feel like is so there's so much more to it. I mean, I follow you on Instagram too, and I feel oh. like you. When I bring it up too, and I was just like, yeah, which Kirsten Dunst role? Because you were like describing what a personality, your personality can stem from which Kirsten Dunst role right. you connect to. And I thought about it and I was like, which one is, which one is for me? And I think it's, for me, it's uh, her in um, Eternal Sunshine. Oh, yes. Just, Interesting. And like, right. And I'm, but I was like, what does that say about me? <laughs> <laughs> so they were like giving me that um next therapy discussion um well you know i i hope that i hope that lots of people had a reckoning with who they are and i hope <laughs> that <laughs> and i hope that kirsten someday internalizes that she caused all of these people to to rethink their lives yeah. with her work you know we're um, useful to astrology i mean it's <laughs> i yes I mean, it's like she's done it all she's done melodrama she's done tragedy she's done superhero uh, she's yes. yeah she's she has the range she has the range she has the range also <laughs> only because i'm super interested in this could you quickly talk about the lana del rey discussion you were going to talk you were going oh thank goodness <laughs> i like i was listening to it and i was like all right i leaned in i was like okay let me <laughs> this is it this is what i've been waiting for um, yes let's well, lean in um the most problematic Oh Lord. Yeah. Um, what do I have to say about Lana? I think, okay, Lana, if you're listening, we love you. Um, but you know, the, the issue for me is that all of these things that people are now, it's not even an issue. My observation 
is that all of these things that people are, are, are calling her out for in terms of, um, well, not wearing a mask, which is a form of white privilege. So I guess I'll just say white privilege generally. Um, that's been in the work since 2011. And I'm just wondering, <laughs> huh? The work is, is about that. Yes. You write about it in the Lana chapter. Yeah, it both is that and it is about that. And I think at times it's like, yeah. And the other issue for me is that also, again, we have this space and this, this seems to happen a lot in music where we excuse someone, well, and in film, um, actually in all artistic media, we excuse someone because they're being ironic um, and that that doesn't work either because Lana is not being ironic. I think now she's maybe being more ironic than she ever has been in this sort of like folksy Joan Baez thing because because uh, I think that that's, I think but she she's knows. Melodramatic. She's, she's being melodramatic in a way that entails the impossibility of the belief in this whole shtick that she's doing. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's about, it's, yeah, it's about the tension of that belief because it's like, is she being serious? Is she not? Does she know who she is? Is she not? And I think the, 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 the coextensive issue is that we, we again, presume to know wh what she thinks about herself. And it's like, we don't. And, and also the arbitration of whether or not women have control over their art is a whole other problem. Um, and people assume that it's more real now because it's like her and like it's stripped down and it's like, you know, it's it's not, you know, Florida Kilo is where she's singing about getting Coke, you yeah. know, it's like, it's like, oh, she's being so true to herself. So I guess at the end of the day for me, and, and I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on it. It's two things. It's one, we can't keep arbitrating, uh, you know, to use what Emily brought up, the, 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 the intentionality of women artists. Um, but at the same time, it's like, uh, that doesn't excuse anyone from being problematic or what have you. I do wonder why she is only just sort of reckoning with the sort of racialized undertones of her work now, because you know, 2012 National Anthem with like ASAP Rocky as, as JFK and her as Jackie. Oh, it's so weird and so problematic, but we didn't have the language for it then maybe. Uh, and we do now, but yeah, I guess, I guess it's a both end. It's like we, we yeah, it, it's perplexing. Do you remember when Norman fucking Rockwell came out and some critic wrote a piece about, I don't even remember what the, what the piece was. I think it was kind of largely trying to reconcile the problematic elements of it. And Lana like responded and she was like, I don't recognize anything you're saying about my work, which was right. like, I was so secondhand embarrassed. I was like, this is not, you know, like, you right. Don't Such a faux pas. Trying to like do the, the interpretation of your work for people. But, yeah, it was, yeah. It was a huge faux pas. I think the issue, and again, I don't want to mansplain this to anybody. I'm the, you know, but it's like, I think that the way that she's accepted criticism, she literally announced an album in response to someone saying she was being racist. And she was like, well, I'm going to show you and release an album. And it's like, well, you know, sis, like you're, you're not, you're not, it's, it's not, 
it's not a it's not a good look. Um, to just keep doing what she's doing and stop intervening in like stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or just being like, I'm sorry. This is my experience. This is just the way it is. I apologize, I'll try to do better. Uh, but I don't know how she would do better because like you said, Emily, her work is- About that. <laughs> it's about these things. It's about the, it's about the patriarchy. It's about race. It, it is uh, a sort of racist, nostalgic, imaginary. Um, now it's sort of like a white indie folk girl, sort of fragile. Oh, look, you don't, I'm so misunderstood and beautiful. My partner's <sighs> never heard a Lana Del Rey song and he once identified her, like when he was out on a walk, he was like, oh, I, I just saw that that pop star you're obsessed with. No. She was driving in a convertible and she looked really sad. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong? <laughs> Let us help you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's like, I, I can't cancel her because I, uh, that's another thing. It's like, I can't cancel her because I love her her music and it got me through some tough shit. And that is white privilege too, being able to sort of hang on again, to use these sort of tactile metaphors, to hang on to what it is that you love. Because I think for uh, a lot of people, what one sees, it's not even that you don't see people in culture who are like you, but it's that culture is constantly failing you in various ways and uh, not only not showing you, you know, uh, any number of representational um, things in terms of people like you on screen, but also just that the culture itself is sort of prone to disappointment. And uh, I don't know, I think disappointment has a whole other racialized and classed and whatever component, but I wish the best for her. White drag once, which was a really useful uh, yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Did that answer your question? <laughs> I think that was a beautiful ending. I mean, I feel oh, like thanks. that was just a great way to end this off. I mean, I always just love a discussion about Lana and her problematicness with her and her. Who, here's my question beautiful. Who is her? Well, I don't want to call anybody in particular. <laughs> I think we already have, but who is her manager? Who is her publicist? They are out to lunch. We'll we'll do it if she's looking. Do it, please hire us, mother. <laughs> please hire us. I feel like there's a sense of her though, maybe managing herself. You know what I mean? Like, right. She has too much control on her own image in a way that's like mm. hurting. She responds to things where it's like, why are you responding to this? Like, yes. don't right. Don't like I because no manager would have let her have an iPhone. Like they would like, <laughs> right. an iPod touch, have fun. Have iPod touch. Yes. They 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 like wouldn't let her like uh, I mean, yeah, let her drive around in her convertible and look sad. Don't go online. <laughs> yeah. That's all you need to do. And that's what all, we all want. All those the rest of us, the media serfs who are like condemned yeah. Online forever. We will not all be driving around in a convertible looking sad. And not looking at Instagram. Yeah, like when she said, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm not glamorizing like depression and sadness. I'm just very glamorous and I'm depressed. <laughs> if that's all in that post too, and like I'd been like, all right, good. I love it. But it's great. Shirt, that's merch. Like, let's go. <laughs> well, you know, that reminds me, and and then I'll I'll let you all go, but there's there's an artist. 
um, there's a photographer named Tina Barney and she, um, she pretty much exclusively photographs rich people, um, like extremely aristocratic, like New England rich. And, and I watched, a, it's always debated like, oh, she's deconstructing class, like blah, blah, blah. And I watched this interview with her and she was like, no, I, I am photographing the aristocracy because I am an aristocrat. And I was like, you know, that's fine. Like stay in your lane and just do what you're doing. And she's not purporting that her photography is unearthing some sort of social problem. She's just <laughs> documenting the people that she hangs out with. Her contemporaries. <laughs> right, her contemporaries. <laughs> I hope that like, I mean, that in a sense is, because in a hundred years, who knows? Who knows what how her art will be like taken. But as of now, she's like, no, this is it. This is what it is at, yeah. ba- like, at face value. And I mean, isn't that in a way like truth? Uh, but, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, because... like, I think, you know, the rich should still be guillotines, but I find Marie Antoinette's mm-hmm. decor sensibilities incredibly inspiring. And- <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think there is value in staying in your lane, as it were, because, you know, especially in the realm of celebrities, like not every, a lot of celebrities, they don't know how to put on their shoes, you know, and it's like, can we ask them to have an opinion on a social issue and then inevitably be disappointed? <laughs> yeah, leave them alone. Yeah, <laughs> like asking um, a puppy to like, do the inauguration speech. They can't, they just right. can't. <laughs> But like, they're still beautiful to look at. Like it's, they're still, you get enjoyment out of them. Yeah. You can't, ask, you can't ask them for this. Um, but let's not celebrity, you know what? Uh, let's not, <laughs> I mean, we'll probably get a lot of hate for this, but you know, from celebrities, I can't wait for like- Sorry, celebrities, we love you still. I mean, Kirsten Dunst, of course not. Like she'll- She got no hate. She has no hate, she has no hate. This is She a- only got love through this process <laughs> but like i can't wait for the inevitable lana instagram post that's gonna right come. <laughs> i well i have a comment on the culture and then it's like you know i mean in that in its essence will be beautiful um but um i we have to go but um this has been a beautiful conversation i think the was the line from their book throbbing cocks and throbbing hearts was that it or did my misquote that sounds right i think that's that's <laughs> yes i mean that's I mean, one that's merch. That's like free merch. Ah! I put that on. <laughs> and I will be the first to buy it. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, a swollen cock and a swollen heart. Swollen cock and swollen heart. I mean, Throbbing might be like the sequel, but like that. <laughs> Part two. Part two. <laughs> no, but that's, but there's just been so much, there's been so many gems here. And you guys have been so interesting to just hear talk to each other. And in a way too, that like only friends can talk to each other. So thank you. Oh, um, thank you, Emily. But, um, and you can find Queer Formalism. We're, Star- Skylight Books will be selling it. So you can order it online or um, in your, at your local bookstore, wherever you um, live. And um, Emily, we should also be looking out for your new book coming out soon too. So- yeah, I'll share your details as soon as they're formalized. <laughs> can we- queer Formalized. Can we come back and I interview Emily? I mean, I wasn't gonna say that out loud, but like, <laughs> And that would be, I mean, a great follow-up episode. We'll talk more about Lana then, too. Um, yes. But, no, this has been a great episode. Do you guys have anything you would like to say to the independent bookstore community? 
we miss you so much and we'll we'll hopefully see you uh in person very soon we hope yes so too. we hope so too but thank you again thank you to all my beautiful listeners out there listening and remember to shop at your local independent bookstore whenever you can you and you have a great rest of your day thanks you too. thanks lance thanks emily thank you Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.